Hey everybody, welcome to the Outpost Community Church Podcast. My name's Addison, I'm on staff here as the youth pastor. We are currently going through the book of Matthew, and so we hope you enjoy listening and have a wonderful week of worship. On the chief, who's chiefs in the room? All the kids who like Taylor Swift. Okay, what about 49ers? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how many of you are actually 49ers fans? Yeah. Okay, like one. The rest of you are like, we just want to see the Chiefs lose. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> I know, exactly, exactly. Um, listen, there's a lot of dividing lines in our, in our culture, right? It's like Chiefs, Niners tonight. Uh, we've got, you know, I'm, I'm going to step on some things here in a second. Uh, how about temple or no temple? Okay, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands on that one. Uh, Democrat, Republican, right? These are some dividing lines, right, in our culture, in our life, in our local life, in our personal life, in our national life. And there are talking points on either side of the lines, aren't there? Like everybody's got some talking points. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's better? Who's worse? Now, with Chiefs and 49ers, they get to duke it out on the football field to see who's the best, right? They're going to see who, who's the better team. With the temple, you duke it out in the city meetings or in the courts. Uh, in our republic as a nation, we duke it out in the politics and the political realm, and it, it's, it affects every part of our life, every part of our life. But friends, listen, the bigger and wider and deeper divide that is happening goes beyond our life, our, our local government, our, our national government. It, it's the spiritual divide between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. This is the war that matters more than anything else. The question that we all have to ask is not what side are we on when it comes to chiefs and the Niners or the temple or the no temple or Democrat or Republican. Those are all great and you can decide and that's fantastic. They, they matter in varying degrees, but the thing that matters more than anything else is are you on God's side or are you against God? That's what matters more than anything. You hear me? Church, where are you at? Yeah, okay. This message that we're going we're gonna to go into today is going to expose the battle for us that is going on spiritually below all of these little divides that we have as human beings, okay? And what these other divides that are happening in our life, guys, uh, they, what they do is they sometimes distract us from the true war and, uh, and distract us from the true division, Right? Republicans and Democrats both have forgotten that the real battle is actually a spiritual battle. We dishonor and speak with contempt towards those who are on the opposite side of the temple debate. Some people today are going to get in a fight and they're going to go to bed depressed because their team of 20 and 30-year-old overpaid athletes who like to hit each other on the weekends are going to lose. And they're, gonna be, they're just going to be depressed tonight because they lost. So not only are we distracted, which by the way, is, Satan loves it when you have no idea, when you completely forget that he is warring against God for your soul. He loves when you rant on Facebook about your opinion about something in this life. He loves it. He's like, good, stay focused on that. I love it. I love it. But church, I think... We don't take this, enough, this seriously enough. The battle is going on, and it's a spiritual war, and it's for the souls of men. It's for your life. It's for your kid's life downstairs. It's for your neighbor's life next door. 
It doesn't matter if they're a Democrat or Republican or if they're for the temple or against the temple or if they're a chief fan or a niner fan or if they're black, if they're white, if they're a woman, if they're a man, if they're 30 or they're 63. It does not matter. This war is below, it is the sub-war, it's the war below every single divide in this world. Israel-Hamas, the real war is not that. The war is, do you belong to God or are you against God? You hear me? That is the actual war. Every Christian go, yeah, I completely agree with that. That's what the Bible teaches. And we're going to look at that today. But often, we, like the Pharisees we're going to look at in the story, completely forget that that's what it's about. And so today, I think we need this message. Because we need to be reminded that being for God doesn't mean that it means being a Republican who's against the temple, who loves the Denver Broncos, because that's really God's favorite team. You can be a fan of the right team, be a Republican, be against the temple, can go to church, you can read your Bible, you can do all these things and still not be on God's side. Do you know that? Did you know that? One is not the other. So today we need this message because we need to find out what does it really mean to be on God's side. So here's the main point we're going to look at today. It's, in your, uh, it's on the app, it's in your notes, so you can go ahead and have it. Uh, but here's the main point. Right words and actions come out of a heart that is on God's side. Right words and actions come out of a heart that's on God's side. We're going to look at three points, and they're basically the reverse of this, okay? And here are the three points. We're going to look at wrong words say a lot about being on the wrong side with the wrong heart. We're going to look at those three things. Wrong words say a lot about being on the wrong side with the wrong heart. So let's look at the wrong words and what they say about us, okay? I'm going to reread verse 22 through 24. It says, Then a demon-impressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, and that man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, this is the setup to this whole story, this scene here. Is Jesus healing a demon-oppressed man? And it's then the Pharisees' reaction to what Jesus does and the people's reaction to what Jesus does, okay? Now, it's important that you understand that this is a demon-oppressed man because what's going to be set up right here is that this is what you're about to see. This is a scene that is between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. This is not just a simple healing, okay? This is a kingdom war. And so when it says that there's a demon-oppressed man, that's what it's setting up for you. And then the, the thing that you have to see next is, okay, how do you view this? Is this God smashing in the teeth of Satan and rescuing somebody? Or is this Jesus, like the Pharisees? Because to everyone around them, apparently it was obvious that this man was possessed by a demon. Now, how was obvious to them? We can't really get into. But it was obvious to them that this man was possessed by a demon. And then it was obvious that this man was healed. But how he was healed was not obvious to everybody. Not everybody agreed on it, right? And so it, this miracle, first of all, it reveals to us that Jesus is on God's side. Wouldn't you say? It's a man who's getting healed. He could see now. He could hear now. He didn't have a demon in him, oppressing him. So it's obvious that Jesus is on God's side, but not to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, when they watch this, after watching a man find freedom and healing, which is obviously a good thing, 
they discredit Jesus and they say it's only by Beelzebul. It's only by Beelzebul, uh, there's a lot of debate on, the, on like where they get that word, why they say Beelzebul. But ultimately, you just need to know, it's basically like they're saying, it's only by Satan that he does this. That's what he's saying. That was random. Oh, is that you guys? I was like, that sounded like the bell to go to the next class. That's what that sounded like. <laughs> if you're listening on the podcast, we've got some, uh, some guys who help people, people alive in our community and their alarms are going off. Um, so... These guys are saying, hey, it's only by Satan's power, the prince of demons, that he is casting out demons. Does that sound crazy to anybody? It's like ridiculous. He just did a good thing. Satan's not for a good thing. Satan's for binding up and holding and capturing people and collecting them. And, Satan, and Jesus is coming to do it. So this is like an incredibly disrespectful thing to say. How many of you guys have ever worked really, really hard to do something for somebody really good and really kind and they demonized you? You know what that's like? You're trying to love them, trying to speak truth in your life, trying to care for them, and they just turn around and demonize you and gossip about you and say false things about you and try to hurt you. You know what that's like, right? And when I imagine, like when I, when I went back and I was just kind of rereading Matthew and imagining all that Jesus had done, it's like on a whole nother level. Jesus has been healing people and setting them free and loving them and, and speaking this like incredible messages of truth that are unbinding oppression in their society. And it's like, it's like unreal. And they're saying, uh, you're just doing this by Satan's power. That's incredibly disrespectful. And so what Jesus, here's the thing. What do you do when a fool talks to you like that? Well, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 say this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he, you be like him yourself. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. You're going to be like him. But then, 20, then verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Anybody feel like you're getting mixed signals here? Right? What does that mean? Well, I think one thing it means is like you can never really win with fools. Okay? You can never really win with fools. But number two is it's this. Jesus is not going to be a fool where he's going to stoop down to this getting into an insult contest with the Pharisees. He's not going to get into a name-calling uh, 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 fest with these guys. But he is going to use their perceived wisdom against them. And that's what it means to answer a fool according to his folly. So Jesus is going to respond to these guys. And let's look at his response. So response number one is just he's going to use simple wisdom. And I, this is what I've, I've realized with really wise men. When they respond, it's not complicated. It's really simple. And you instantly look like a fool if you do not agree, right? Timothy Keller was so great at this. Verse 25, he says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them. Now, let me pause right there. The Pharisees, did they say their statement out loud or did they say it in their heads? They said it out loud, right? They said, it's only by the power of Beelzebul that you do this, the prince of demons. They said it out loud. Everybody could hear their thoughts because they said them, right? So what is this saying to us? It's saying something really, really important, and it's important to this whole passage. Jesus doesn't just hear what they say. He can see where what they say comes from, down in their hearts. This is really important for me, and, and God's been teaching me a lot on this lately. Guys, I do a lot of good things all week long. I do a lot of good things. And I, I'm not being arrogant. I do a lot of good things. Do you guys think that I, it's possible, possible for me to do a lot of good things for the wrong reason? Oh, my goodness, is it possible? God's been revealing to me lately, like, how many of the things I do that maybe they're really right and they're good and they're biblical, 
But God's been showing me, but hey, buddy, underneath the surface, you're doing these things not with pure motive, not totally for me. And God's been exposing that to me, that it's possible to go to church on a Sunday, to read your Bible, to maybe tithe and to serve and to maybe have good business ethics and to be kind, to be the nicest person that the world has ever met, and yet still not be for God. What? Guys, it's true for you as well. And it's true for the Pharisees. It's, it's, it's really the picture of a pharisaical attitude. You can have the greatest church attendance and best voting records, but God's not going to be looking at your voting records and your church attendance. When you stand before God in heaven, he's going to look at your heart. He's going to look at your heart. And I don't know about y'all, man, but it convicts me. Like when you start to understand and come in contact with a holy God, not just with your outside, but with your very inside, you let God assess that, show me a man who can still stand before the Lord. I'd love to meet him. I've only met one, and it's Jesus. It humbles me, guys, puts me on my face. And so first thing he says is knowing their thoughts, he said to them, he can see right past all their charades, all the religious charades. They dress nice, they go to church on Sunday, they fast, they pray, they tithe, they do their things. Because I could see past your charades, and then he says this simple wisdom. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself, itself will stand. That's bullet one. And then he adds another bullet. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Bullet number three. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, Satan, by whom does your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Let's break these down. Okay, first of all, Abraham Lincoln was not the first one to say that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln ripped off Jesus. Did you know that? Okay, so next time you hear a politician try to, you know, associate themselves with Abraham Lincoln, go, hey, sorry, but you're associating yourself with Jesus. Abe Lincoln said that in 1858, but the wisdom was true not just in 1858, but in 31 AD when Jesus said it in 2024 in our nation right now when we say it. Isn't it obvious that a nation divided against itself will not be able to stand? Okay. So the obvious wisdom here is that, like, yeah, that doesn't work. We could see it right now. Okay, what a foolish thing to say, Pharisees. But then Jesus puts it back on them. He says, guys, uh, you've cast out demons. So when I first read bullet number three, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? I thought it was a straight, like, smack to the face, like, you guys don't cast any out, so uh, how do you do it then? Right? That's not what he was saying. He's saying, listen. Some of your Pharisees, some from your order, actually have cast out demons. Who did you guys think you were casting them out according to? Or like, what power do you think was a part of you casting them out? You hear what I'm saying? And their obvious answer is going, yeah, the Spirit of God. We think the Spirit of God is the thing that casts them out. He's going, then why do you think that it's not by the Spirit of God that I'm doing it? That's his point right there. So he's like, guys, if you've cast out demons and it's been by God's power, then obviously that's the same way that I'm doing it, right? They believe that exorcisms were performed by the power of God, that light defeats and throws out darkness, which leads to the second point. So the first point was, hey, basic wisdom disagrees with you guys. And listen, Jesus is not yelling at them. He's not being disrespectful to them. He's not trying to be 
uh, like I said, he's not stooping to their foolishness. He's just responding with simple wisdom. But then he goes to his second response, and this is a response of stronger power. It's a response of power. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit, look at he says, if. What a gracious thing. Hey, guys, listen. But if, he knows it's by the Spirit of God, doesn't he? Do you know it is? Yeah, okay, okay. But he goes, but if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, Pharisees. This is God. This is the kingdom of God. And then a sub-point to this, verse 29, says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, Jesus is not giving permission to going and like breaking into people's houses, tying them up, and stealing their junk, okay? So Jesus follows up the obvious wisdom with a simple, simple claim. I am stronger. I am here in the power of God. And I think Jesus is being patient. He's saying if, right? But look at what he says. He says, he says if it's by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why does Jesus use the, the phrase kingdom of God? You're going, that's not, why, why would you even ask that? Well, because most of the time, Jesus says kingdom of heaven. Only five times does he ever say kingdom of God. Why does Jesus say kingdom of God, not kingdom of heaven? Uh, it's really simple. It's because he's setting up a cage fight between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. He's like, I'm going to be clear. I'm in this corner, Satan's in that corner, and I'm about to dominate him. That's why. It's not the kingdom of, he's not saying kingdom of heaven, just go, oh, the big picture. He's going, no, this is me against him. That's what this is. And then he straight flexes. I love when Jesus flexes, okay? He flexes and goes, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? He goes, oh, I know how. I'm stronger. I will come in. I'm going to tie up Satan. I'm going to cast him out, and I'm going to steal from him. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm stronger than Satan. That's how I get this done. Man gets in the ring with me. He's out before we even ring the bell. I'm going to take it. I'm going to steal. And who is Jesus stealing? What is Jesus stealing from Satan? Anybody know? You. Satan wants to collect you and hold you. And Jesus comes to smash his face in and take you back. I love that. More language in the church of just beating Satan up. This is the imagery. This, this imagery in Matthew, he's stealing from Isaiah. Isaiah 49. Listen to this. I read this in my community this last week. It's just such a good section. This is Isaiah 49, 24 through 26. I think it'll be on the screen. It says, God says through Isaiah, can the prey be taken from the mighty? Can you steal a little doe from a grizzly bear? You gonna get in there on that? Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, and the Mighty One of Jacob. I got goosebumps. Forget Alpost and its pastor. Alpost is this weak 
little thing. Its pastor is this weak, frail, anxious fool compared to the God Almighty who smashes in Satan's face and steals from him. If you hear me say anything today, just hear this. Your God is mighty and he destroys oppressors and he wants to save you. That's who the Lord is. Worship the Lord. Don't worship some church. Don't worship some pastor. Don't listen to uh, all these propagandists. Listen to what the Lord says. I want to save you. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it what? Abundantly. God is not rescuing people from Satan to then go and oppress them in some churchianity religiosity. He's wanting to save you from this foolish idea that Satan wants to help you out. Satan wants to kill you, guys. That's why there is such a culture of death in America. Look at the talking points of people who perpetuate the, the teaching of Satan. John 10.10 10 is actually not talking about Satan. If you go and read the context, it's talking about false teachers. False teachers, and listen, I have falsely taught. You have falsely taught the things of Satan and perpetuated oppression. And some of you, in your silence, because silence in the face of evil is evil, you have perpetuated by not talking up about things that destroy people's life. Things like, let me just take obvious ones, abortion, LGBTQ+, transgender idea, ideology, uh, you know, uh, this euthanasia and assisted suicide and depression and these things. The silence has been so deafening that we are allowing the teaching of Satan to just keep on going. And you guys go, well, the church is supposed to be separate from the state. It says who? Who? God? God doesn't say that. I don't care what you guys, that's not what, that's not what God says. The, the re, listen, okay, I'm, I do these every once in a while and I'm on it again. Let me, let me step down, I'm not on the soapbox, me as well. Listen to me. If you do not act like the church, no wonder your, your nation is being ripped apart. But at the end of the day, God does not care about what history says about the nations. He doesn't care. Because below all the nations, there's a bigger and more important war. And it's the war between God and Satan for you, friends, and for your children. Whose side are you on? And what you say says a lot about whose side you are on. What does the, the Pharisees' response say about them? It says at least a couple things. Number one, they lack empathy. They don't care about human beings. Man couldn't see. Man couldn't talk. Right? Was oppressed by a demon. God sets him free. Jesus sets him free. And they're like, ah, you just did this by Satan. What? Totally no empathy, shows their foolishness, shows their pride, and it shows their jealousy. Because they don't want people loving Jesus. They want people loving them. Shame on me when I want you to love me more than you love God. Shame on you when you do the same. So listen, wrong words say a lot. Wrong words say a lot about being on the wrong side. Let's talk about being on the wrong side. Jesus is setting that up. Verse 30 is the dividing line of this passage. Go to verse 30. Put your finger on it. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is making it clear. You need to decide whose side are you on. 
Church, I'm talking to you. Whose side are you on? This is the dividing line of the passage. It's between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Are you with Jesus? If you're not with Jesus, you are for Satan. You don't have to be a part of the church of Satan. Good on them for clarifying whose team they're on. But if you're not for God, you are absolutely giving support to the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is here to set the captives free. And so he gives a warning, and here's where a lot of you guys are like, ooh, here's where I've been waiting for this whole time. He gives a warning of condemnation. We're going to make this clear. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so the question that many people ask, and we're going to answer right now, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Have I ever done it? Am I unforgivable now? No, that's absolutely not what this passage is teaching. Not at all what it's teaching. False uh, horrible, uh, foolish teachers have said that and perpetuated that idea. You have not, you may be, listen, every one of you have, at one point in your life, we're living in a blasphemous life against the Holy Spirit. But some of you switch sides. So what does it mean? It means simply this. What does it mean to blaspheme? I think it's on the screen. It's being on the side of Satan. It's choosing to be against God. If you choose to be against God, you will be unforgiven. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Remember, the whole passage is about the single most important decision human beings can, can make in their life. Will I be for God or will I be against God? That's what this whole thing is about. And so when Jesus says, there, he says, therefore, therefore I tell you, he's going, he's saying, because of what the Pharisees said, therefore I tell you, if you're on that side, if you choose the side of Satan, listen to me, you will not be forgiven in this age or the next. He's talking about the Pharisees say, it's obvious that, they're, it's obvious what side the Pharisees have chosen. Now, like I said, where many get this wrong is thinking that if you choose to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you are marked as unforgivable, but that's not true. There are Satanists who have converted to Christianity. You know that? They were on the side of Satan, literally, and now they're on the side of God. And they used to scatter, but now they gather. Uh, one person, his name is Nicholas Schreck. L- Nicholas Schreck Uh, was born into and raised by the founding members of the Church of Satan. He's he's an American guy. His father was a convicted murderer. And then he was adopted into this family and raised by those who were connected to the Manson family. But later in his life, God drew him away from the demonic and he became a follower of Jesus. He's not marked unforgivable. He's marked redeemed, purchased. Or how about Derek Black? Have you heard of Derek Black? Derek Black was the heir apparent to the leading white supremacist group in the United States. His dad was the first to launch a website for white nationalists in the United States. But through the kind, he's my age, but through the kindness of Jews and Christians at his local college, he began to see the error in his ideology and his father's movement and eventually became known, it came to know his heavenly father. And he converted to Christianity in his adult years. Isn't that amazing? God rescues Satanists. God rescues white supremacists. God rescues everybody who will say, I don't want to be on this side anymore. God, I want to be with you. And so what this is saying 
friends, that blasphemy against the Spirit in terms of what the Pharisees did in verse 24 is attributing what is in fact the work of God's Spirit to the ultimate enemy, Satan. It's a complete perversion of spiritual values, revealing that you've made a decisive choice to be on the wrong side in the battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. Every single sin can be forgiven in Jesus. Every sin. But if you maintain an adversarial position against God, you will find yourself unforgiven in a life to come. That is what Jesus is teaching. So let me define adversarial position. Because I think some of you believe that you're like, hey, I'm not against God. I'm not going around telling people not to believe in Jesus. I'm not trying to burn down churches. Like, what does it mean to be in an adversarial position against God? Okay? Uh, You may be a generally good guy who goes to church, maybe reads the Bible, tithes. You may serve in your community. You may be really nice. You might be the coolest and nicest Mormon the whole world has ever seen uh, in history. But let me reread to you what Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says. Flip over to Matthew 7. Just go over there, church. Like, just flip over to it. Read this so you know that I'm not making it up. Matthew 7 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, that means the day of judgment, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I was a great guy. I went to church my whole life. I was a member. I was in community. I I read my Bible. I tithed. I did good things. And he said, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On the surface, listen, What it means to be adversarial against God does not mean that all of your external outside life is just adversarial against God. It means that your heart does not belong to him. That's what it means. And I think that what we perpetuate in the church so many times, and it's just religion, it's religious ideology. And I I have a a top three. In the back of your seats, there's like little top three cards. I have top three. There's now like five on it I've been praying for. And two of them in the same week agreed to read the Bible with me. So now I'm doing this little Bible study with these guys who don't know Jesus. And it's been really wonderful. And uh, actually sometimes talking, having a Bible study with people who don't know Jesus is about the funnest thing ever. Okay? It's like funner than talking with Christians because they don't take anything for granted. Everything is new and wow. And we were talking about this very thing. And I was helping them understand, guys, that the, re- the religion idea, religious idea is a Satan thing. It's Satan's thing. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, I will be accepted by God. Satan wants you to believe that. And what this teaches is not that. It's saying you cannot do enough of these things to be saved by God because you have sin. And sin has condemned you already. What saves you is being God's. We're going to talk about how you can be God's here in a minute. So you can do all these things. You can come to church and I, I hope, listen, I'm trying to help you guys. If you're like, hey, I came here because I was hoping to be okay with God, I'm trying to set you free. It didn't do anything. A- unless you hearing what I'm teaching helps you understand what God can really do in your life. So wrong words say a lot about being on the wrong side, but they say a lot about being on the wrong side with the wrong heart. So let's look at the wrong heart. 
Jesus gives an image in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. It's a very simple image. It's by saying, hey, if your heart is bad, your external part of your life is going to produce bad. If your heart is good, and which really means belongs to the Lord, and what's going to start to come out of you is good things. So what it's saying is a heart change will lead to good deeds. A bad heart will lead to bad deeds. It's just a natural result of who you are. Do you guys hear that? Real simple image. But then it leads to this call out that Jesus gives right here in verse 34. You brood of vipers. That sounds kind of disrespectful. You, uh, how can you speak good when you are evil? Remember, what can Jesus see? He can see their hearts. He can see that they are bad trees. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The religious elite, the ones tasked with leading and teaching the people of Israel, the will and the way of God are being called vipers, just a bunch of snakes. But as I said before, God doesn't look at what man sees. He doesn't just see what's on the outside. He sees down to the heart. Guys, you can have everyone around you convinced that you're a good guy. But you can't fool God. And if you think you can fool God, then you got yourself fooled. And that's really scary. It's a scary place to be. That's not where God wants you. And that's where a look at what you, he goes to the next thing. He goes, a look at what you value will tell you what your heart really treasures. Look, he says, the good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. What he's saying is, hey, what you treasure is going to show what you really value. Have you guys ever seen some of these, like, like, these, like painting auctions? Right? Have you seen some of these paintings that go for like a million and a half? How many of you guys, you look at those paintings and you go, I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. It's like beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Like, somebody's willing to spend a million and a half on that thing. You're like, man, good for you. But I would spend $19 on that thing. Right? It says a lot about what they treasure, doesn't it? Now, I'm not against buying a million and a half dollar paintings. Okay? I'm not against that. But what you treasure says a lot about your heart. And the question is, do you treasure God? Or like the Pharisees, do you treasure, treasure being, having the approval of people around you? Do you treasure um, being liked? Do you treasure your feelings over truth and reality? Do you treasure peace over speaking the truth and love? What do you treasure? And that's what he's saying. is that guys, He's looking to Pharisees. Guys, you treasure being loved and having control over these people. And that's what Satan wants to do. You don't treasure the spirit of God. Man, it convicts me. This has been convicting me all week, guys. I have the blessing of being able to be in this passage all week. I also have the curse because it just like, it just scratches at my heart and just tears at me, which is a beautifully hard and good thing. So friends, the terrible re reality is when you come in contact with the holiness of God, it's gonna absolutely humble the mess out of you. And here at Outpost, I don't want us to be a church that just tries to clean up comes into this building and we sit down, shut up, pay up, and go about our business. God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be transformed. And to be transformed, we have to allow our hearts to be exposed to God's holiness. And so being exposed to God's holiness is really hard, but if we don't, there's a warning he gives us. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, that word careless is a uh, careless word. It's not, I don't think that's a, the right word to use there. Not that I'm saying I'm wiser than the ESV people, but uh, reading some commentaries, I saw that a better word would be empty. 
I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every empty word they spoke. What does that mean? It means, means that you did a lot of talking the talk, but behind it, there was no weight. No weight. Your life did a lot of speaking like you are God's, but at the end of the day, he's going to look at you and go, I don't know you. And you guys have to know that what's going to be, uh, you know, what's going to be weighted is not just what you say, but where it comes from. It is, listen, I came into a church at like 16 years old, 15 years old. It was real easy to figure out how to talk in a way that you could be accepted by the people in that church. The exciting Midway Baptist Church looked like this place. And uh, it was really easy. Man, you say, brother, blessings, you don't cuss, you don't dance down the hall. All these, like, I just figured out what they all were. And I was like, oh, this isn't hard. I could do this. But then when I go to the locker room, I didn't sound like some Baptist boy no more. My life did not belong to Jesus. And what led me to Jesus was that God just basically, like, smashed me continually. I felt like for about a year, I stopped sitting with my family, I stopped sitting with the youth group, I would sit in the back and I would weep. I'd be back there and I would just cry because I could feel in my soul that what I was doing was not real inside of me and it was ruining me. Ruin you know what that's like, church? That's how we came to Jesus. Is something was just constantly being exposed to me that I had an emptiness inside of me and everything I was doing was just religious facade and charades. And maybe my, if I would have got hit in a car and died, my youth pastor would have been like, well, I think he was saved. Maybe he would have said that. But nah, I would have gone to hell. Because I was faking it. I was pretending. And so listen. Now here's the thing. I don't want to, I want to wake us up. Listen, I think that uh, in the church, we're heavily conscious of those who visit and, and come here. But uh, I love you and I'm so glad that you're here, but I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to the church. This is the church's time, and so if you feel uncomfortable, you're supposed to feel uncomfortable, okay? Because the Bible is not necessarily comfortable, all right? So I'm not going to dumb this down to make you feel comfortable. I want to say what this really is. Your holy God is going to judge you for where your, if your heart belongs to him or not. And some of you, you're fooling yourself, you actually belong to Satan, you don't belong to God. But you're here today, and it could be that God is trying to rescue you and set you free. And if you want him to set you free, I think a lot of you, you might come out of this passage going, gosh, you know, I thought I was doing good things. I thought coming to church was a good thing, and it is. I thought reading my Bible was a good thing, and now I'm not sure anymore. Is it? No, it is. There's a lot of good things that you should do because they're good. And when you start to question your heart, you, you could kind of freak out, right? Kate and I were talking about this recently. You, it could start to drive you crazy. And you can get really narcissistic and, self, and like self-focused. You're like, did I do that for the right reason? Did I do that for the right reason? And oh my gosh, you could do that. That's not what this is trying to do for you. What Jesus says here is so great. And this is where the gospel is, guys. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every empty word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. What does he mean? He means this. Friends, listen to me. I don't want you to sit around over-assessing every little motivation. You just have to make this simple faith step to go, God is my king. God is my king, and I want him. That's it. You take that step and say, God, you are my king. Like this, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth, remember what he said? What did he say? 
For by your words you will be justified. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is king and believe in your heart. You can't just say it with your mouth. You've got to believe it in your heart because he can see right past your mouth, right to your heart. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus the king from the dead, you will be saved. That's what saves you. Period. 100%. Done. Not guilty. You show up to heaven and he goes, I know you were still a sinner, but well done, good and faithful servant. Come enter into my rest. And you go, but here's what I think is going to happen with a lot of Christians. There's going to be a lot of people who come to heaven and they go, but I did this and I did this and I did this. And he's go, I don't know you. And then I think Christians are going to come and go, but God, I did this and I did this. And he goes, I know, but I forgave all of that. Come on in. It's going to be completely the opposite. Christians are not prideful people, and they're not not sinners. They're sinners. And they go, gosh, can I just tell you? I'm addicted to this. I'm afraid of this, and I do this, and I'm in fear, and I'm in anxiety, and I've got all, this is where I'm at, but my God still loves me, and he's still my king. Praise God. That's what it means to be a part of the church. That's what it means to be saved. But that pharisaical attitude is so smelly and nasty because all it does is just perpetuates this idea of like, but look at me. Like, I can't wait until all of you see what God says about me on the day of judgment. And I can't wait to hear. And, and there's this scene where Jesus says, listen, there's, there's, it's this, there's this Pharisee, this religious leader, and then there's this poor tax collector. One's on his face crying out to God, begging for mercy. And there's this Pharisee going, thank you, God, I'm not like this man. And you know what Jesus says? I saved the one on his face. That man's going to burn in hell. Because he thought he could do this without me. He's going to say, depart from me. I don't even know who you are. God is not looking for you to be perfect. God is looking for you to say yes to a relationship with him. He'll help you with everything else. You hear me? I mean, like, sometimes I wish. I'm not going to say that. All right. <laughs> Friends, the, the gospel, the gospel that Jesus is teaching in this passage is saying, listen, don't fall prey to the demonic idea that I need you to do a bunch of rules to be saved. Understand, if you believe and you have trust in me, you'll be saved. And listen, some of you, there's someone in this room that you were just like me at 16. And you might be 60, but maybe God's pressing in your heart and you're realizing that you've been spending a lot of time acting like a Christian, but you probably don't belong to Jesus. Friend, if that's you, I need you to know it's okay. We've all done the same thing. Jesus sees it. He's not surprised. And he loves you. And right now, if you just confess that sin, that charade, and say, Lord, I need you. I've been playing the religious game. Would you please forgive me? I want you to be king of my life. I don't want to perpetuate Satan's ideas anymore. I don't want to fake it. I want to be saved and redeemed. I want you to know right now, if you do that, he will save you, period. He will save you. To my Christian brothers and sisters in this room, listen, I want you to take time to rejoice and worship the Lord that even though you still perpetuate Satan's ideas, you are saved. You haven't lost your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. That is demonic teaching. It's not true. He loves you. He's redeemed you. He shows that even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he saved you, right? He loves you. Now, I want you to consider how that love should motivate you 
to speak up against demonic lies and teaching. Don't be the Pharisees who perpetuate these legalistic ideas. Let's join God and the kingdom of the true king by testifying to the truth that he gives in the gospel. Amen, church? We can be courageous, not because we're right. We can be courageous because we're with God. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I pray, I know there's somebody in this room. I, I don't want to let the weight off of them at all. Father, use my mouth to speak to them right now. I pray that they would repent of faking it. I pray, God, right now, they would feel your holiness burning them up. They would feel that your intense love on their soul. I pray, God, that you would woo them in to saying yes to a relationship with you. God, I confess as one of your sons, along with my brothers and sisters in the room who are already saved, I confess that my heart has perpetuated and believed the lies of Satan. I just ask for your forgiveness. God, I pray that you forgive me for faking it this past week. God, I pray that you forgive me for hiding my sin, thinking that you won't see it. God, I pray you give me courage to be a man who trusts you, who confesses, who rejoices, who finds joy in the truth. Though I'm a sinner, I am saved and redeemed. I pray that my, this church here that belongs to you and you alone, I pray, God, that they would be not discouraged in their sin, but, God, encouraged in their redemption. I pray that you would wake them up to testify to the goodness of your name. God, I pray that they would become brighter and they would glow with joy as they go into this community. That they would go and tell others how loving and kind God really is. And I pray they have a great week of worship. And I pray the same of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.